BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What up, everybody? This is the Preachers and Sneakers podcast. The podcast that the least amount of people have ever asked for. Today, I had an amazing conversation with my Instagram friend up in New York, Whitney Bauk, otherwise known as at Unwrinkling on Instagram. She's the associate editor at Fashionista.com and has also written for the New York Times, Washington Post, Billboard, all the major news outlets. And she focuses on the intersection of faith and ethical fashion. So I wanted to get her perspective on ethical fashion as well as consumer behavior within the church and just hear a little more about her background. The fun fact is that she was actually the first person to interview me back in March that kind of started the fervor around the Preachers and Sneakers account. So I wanted to talk briefly about that. She's incredibly smart, super eloquent, and I think you'll get a lot out of our conversation. It was challenging to me and I know it'll be challenging to you. Today's episode of the Preachers and Sneakers podcast is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. The Christian Standard Bible is a Bible translation created to be super easy to read without compromising the beauty of the text or the original meaning. Listen to this. Here's what Psalm 23 sounds like in the CSB. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Isn't that awesome? I really like to flow the Christian Standard Bible, and I think you will too. They have tons of beautiful Bibles and great study editions like the She Reads Truth Bible, which my wife absolutely loves. You can check out the Christian Standard Bible at csbible.com. That's csbible.com. Okay, take a listen to my conversation with Whitney Baup. I'm talking to my good Instagram friend, Whitney Baup, the uh, supreme leader of the ethical fashion news industry. Uh, Self-proclaimed, maybe, but she is the the expert in my eyes and has caused me to rethink plenty of things uh, that I do in my own life and the money that I spend. And I've just been sleeping or trying to sleep with the pure guilt that I feel for owning so many pairs of Nikes. But uh, Whitney has written for all the major news outlets and continues to be the associate editor at Fashionista. And she is a big reason why I blew up in the first place and gave me that ridiculous uh, whitewashed <laughs> pseudonym, Tyler Jones. So Whitney, thanks for talking with me on the Preachers and Sneakers podcast. This is, I mean, basically <laughs> your fault. So, you know, 
people should be pissed at you more than they should be pissed at me. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks, thanks for, for having me. I have to admit, I had kind of forgotten that I made up this name for you. And then when I got your email back, I was like, what? Is this his real name? And I was like, no, I literally made this name up. <laughs> like, I gave this man this name. So you're welcome, I guess, Tyler. Yeah. And I I just, I thank you. It's, uh, I every time <laughs> I say it, I feel terrible about it because it's just so uncultured and uh just I could I missed such an opportunity to either rebrand my whole name. I could have had something super like regal and you know macho, but instead I was like, nah, I don't know, just make up a name for me, whatever. Because I had no idea how any of this was going to play out. Like I assumed it was just going to be this one conversation and be like, ha, cool, I was on a news interview, but no, no. Now I mean, all my emails, <laughs> my all my like. Everything that didn't have to require a legal name, that name is gone there. So, um, I, you know, whatever. Thank you. So for the people that don't know you, you the, on Instagram and all the social media, you go by the name Unwrinkling. Could you tell me about that and then kind of give me a brief overview of your writing career and uh, how you earned your position at Fashionista and kind of what drew you to writing in general? Yes. I'll try to do the version that doesn't take three hours, um, but... <laughs> hey, we've got all the time in the world. Yeah, I mean, basically in undergrad, I was studying studio art um, and I had long been interested in fashion, um, but I grew up overseas in Manila, Philippines, and I grew up around a lot of um, poverty, quite frankly, and a lot of there's a lot of uneven development. So Manila has a lot of really wealthy people, has a lot of really poor people, and there's just a really big gap. Mm. And that's you know, I like I drove through a, a squatter village or what you would call here a slum, like to and from school every day for, you know, my whole life. So that's wow. all to say I had always loved fashion, um, but basically for a long time, I just like didn't think it was important work. Like I had a really strong sense of real need in the world and I didn't see fashion as being connected to that. And so I decided to pursue art, which somehow in my mind <laughs> was a more practical way to meet people's needs. Um, yeah, big, big time, is. big time. <laughs> in the art. <laughs> so when I was still an undergrad, I was studying art, but basically had a, a sort of a series of events happen that kind of forced me to rethink or at least like notice the ways that I hadn't really thought through my position on fashion. Um and so I hmm. had an art history professor who was kind enough to let me write a paper for his class that was totally not fulfilling the assignment. But I basically just looked at everything that the Bible says about clothing and like adornment and nakedness and all things that were sort of connected to that oh. because I was it was I was really curious about how those things were connected or not. Um, and my faith was a really big part of what was shaping what I wanted to do with my life. And when I got to the end of that project, um, mm -hmm. I came away from it feeling like not only is this stuff like okay to be interested in if you care about, you know, what the Bible says, but it's actually really crucial and it's all over, it's all over the Bible. So if that's mm -hmm. in any way a, a text that's of interest to you, um, ignoring fashion just doesn't make sense. So from that point, I decided to start a blog and this was, I'm not that old. So this was after <laughs> blogs were allegedly already dead, <laughs> but Best time to um, I, yeah, I started a blog that I called unwrinkling. And even though the blog has not been touched since I was basically a teenager, um, 
it it was sort of where I started thinking about integrating my faith and my understanding of the fashion world. And that's sort of what the name came from. And that's also sort of been the guiding force behind my writing. So these days, as you mentioned, I'm an editor at Fashionista. I still sometimes freelance for places like the Washington Post and the New York Times. Um, And it's not always explicitly about uh, faith or about religion anymore, but I do. That's sort of where I got my start. And once you start thinking about like how religion affects how you would think about fashion, it's a lot about thinking about ethics, right? It's like what's right and what's wrong. And once you start thinking about that, man, there is so much to go into. And that increasingly felt to me like this is really where the meat of the conversation is. And you don't need to, you need to like have the same faith background as me at all to agree that like someone shouldn't die to make a t-shirt. Like that's insane. Hmm. And so that's really become my focus over the past six or so years. I would say my experience of growing up in the Philippines was absolutely positive. Um, I think it, it was a, it was a real gift. I grew up in an international community. It was full of people from all over the world. Um, I grew up getting to see just like growing up in the developing world, you're seeing things really differently. I think there's a tendency here to, to be like, Oh, in the West, people are right. rich and in the global South, they're not. And it's just not that simple. I have friends in the Philippines who are way wealthier than I ever even aspired to be. And I also have friends there who ha- don't have nearly as much as, as I grew up having. And in some ways it's like any place. Um, but I just think it's harder to get away from some of the problems that I think we're really good at insulating ourselves from in the yeah, US. And I bet it, I bet it gave you such a larger understanding or at least an appreciation for other things in the world than just growing up in Kansas in the suburbs. I mean, it's just like having a consideration of other types of people and how like huge populations of people are living completely different than, you know, a lot of us are living in the West. I think that's just such an valuable experience you probably had. Do you speak multiple languages fluently currently? My Tagalog is really pathetic. I feel like when I'm there, <laughs> I can like get around the city. But if you're white and you speak Tagalog to someone, they'll answer you in English because their English is probably better than your Tagalog. So oh, yeah. I have a little bit of an inferiority complex about that, but it's fine. <laughs> that, that word's hard to say. Tagalog? Tagalog with a G. Tagalog? <laughs> Uh, sure. Sound like, <laughs> sorry, I'm just not trying to butcher that. I was just trying to relate to you, but that is a hard word to say. Did you get involved in the Chicago art scene while you were there? I mean, was that a part of that? I was in Chicago a lot. Um, I mean, I figured out pretty early. I figured out basically my sophomore year of college that I wanted to be focusing on fashion. So that sort of, I sort of made everything that I was doing about that from that point on. But it definitely was like in Chicago a lot for different arts events and happenings. I see. Okay. All right. So fast forward, uh, you, did you, did you like, did you see like pretty, I mean, like you said, you're, you're relatively young. Did you see pretty immediate success with your writing? Like, what does that, what does that transition look like from deciding, oh, I'm going to shift to writing about fashion and now I'm writing contributing to the New York Times and getting hired as an actual writer what is what did that process look like well when I first started I truly didn't know what I was doing I didn't read other blogs <laughs> and I honestly didn't really read the news so I don't know what I thought I was doing like I think about my first <laughs> pitches to editors and it's truly horrendous it's like very embarrassing but um I carved out a niche for myself pretty quickly and 
if if talking about like fashion and theology together sounds weird to people, like I mean, maybe on this podcast it doesn't because that's the whole thing, right? But yeah. that was not a conversation people were having in 2013, and right. so it was this kind of like strange thing. Um, so I just, I mean, I pitched a lot, and I I like take rejection in stride pretty well, I guess. So mm-hmm. I don't know how you measure success. I don't know if it's just that I was really stubborn. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't take no for an answer very often. Um, but I started freelancing while I was still an undergrad. And then by the time I left undergrad, I did a, a bunch of different internships at various places um, before eventually landing at Fashionista. So I don't know how we measure success, but right. I I felt I felt pretty strongly about what I felt I was supposed to be doing. And so I ran after that pretty hard. That's awesome that, I mean, thinking about it now, like the blog specifically focusing on the intersection of faith and fashion, you're right. Not many people were talking or even thinking about that kind of thing. And now I think more people are, but it's still, there's still plenty to dissect and talk about and build awareness for, I think, I mean, just from my own personal experience, like I, in 2013, I guarantee you, I didn't care where anything came from. I was more worried about, I, I think, yeah, I was, I was in the military still. So like I was worried about many other things, but definitely did not care where my clothes came from. Um, but now mm-hmm. since you and I have met, I mean, that is something that like I've been so doing the merch deal. It's like, I've been beating these merch companies over the head about like, where, where did this, where did the blanks get made? What are the conditions of this, the factories that these blanks were made? And I had never would have asked that like a year ago. So I think I'm growing a tad, but I just wanted to give you props to say like what you're doing is super meaningful, even though you know this, super meaningful and uh, at least has changed the perspective of one person. And I'm pretty hard-headed sometimes. So <laughs> I appreciate what you do. And I think you write really well. And also, you're not just writing doom and gloom, like ethical fashion articles. Like I read one of your articles about, um, what was it? The, what, what they're wearing at the Grammys and talking about Lizzo's tiny little purse to fit the amount of Fs <laughs> that she gives or something. I was cackling at that because I, I don't think you wrote that part, but you quoted it. And uh, so you have a very diverse <laughs> way of writing. Um, let's see. So you're now at Fashionista and uh, in 2019, how do you think ethical fashion and faith intertwine and why, like why I wanted to talk to you is hopefully that we could communicate why, Christians and and non-Christians alike should care about ethical fashion more than uh, they ever have before. But, you know, the big crux of your mission in life is to talk talk about fashion and faith. So can you just kind of talk briefly about what the state of that is currently and uh, maybe what's being done well and what still needs to be improved on? I know it's a huge question, but just whatever you want to say on that. Yeah, for sure. Well, first of all, thank you for all the kind words. I have to admit, I'm pretty uh, surprised that we're having this conversation right now because when I first started bugging you about where your merch was going to be made, I kind of thought that you were just going to stop <laughs> communicating with me because I was such a pain in the ass about well, it. Well, you know, I I did feel guilt <laughs> and like, oh shit, this she's just let me make this merch, please. Like it's so much cheaper, but. That's not the right way to view it. And so I I did some thinking on that and realized the problem was within me and not within you bugging me. So 
I haven't done it perfectly, but we spent a lot more money on this last merch drop on things that were made in the United States. So, uh, you know, we're heading in the right direction, but, um, yeah, back to you. I don't want to talk about me the whole time. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I appreciate you responding to that. Well, I think the first time I asked when you had actually made merch, it was like, Hey, where did you have your blanks made? And you were like, I don't want to tell you. <laughs> so the fact that we went from that to you inviting me on the podcast is uh, speaks yeah, well of you, honestly. I think that you're willing to like take that. Um, <clears throat> I guess to just give a little bit of background to people who might be newer mm-hmm. to this conversation. And I know that you had um, Liz Bohannon from Seiko yeah. on the podcast earlier, and she's someone that I've learned a ton from. Well, she too, said the but- same about you. I don't know if you listened to it, but she. She was great. I haven't listened to the whole thing yet. That's sweet. She said she basically to. said um, you were the the person to talk to about ethical fashion, and I said I agree. Oh, so she forced you back into well, it. Well, yeah. It's like all right. Oh, you're bringing that. up Whitney again. Great. <laughs> I guess I will have to go talk to her again. <laughs> oh goodness. Uh, yeah, I guess just as an intro to people who are new to this conversation, I think it's been really cool to see what you've done through preachers and sneakers in terms of helping people think about sort of this disparity sometimes in how we talk about faith and about the values of this person, mm-hmm. Jesus, and then, you know, sort of what we're spending on our own clothing. But I think the deeper you go into looking at fashion, the more you understand that n- like 90% of fashion's actual impact in the world is not actually like the end product that sits on someone's shelfer that they're wearing that day. 90% of the impact is coming from the supply chain, which like sounds really unsexy yeah. to people, but it's basically just like how how was the thing made before it got to you? So yeah, maybe it was expensive or it was cheap or maybe it had a like a picture on it that was provocative or not, but before that point there's so many there's so many decisions that mm-hmm. go into making that garment that are mm-hmm. really ethically loaded. Um, So that can be everything from like how the farming was done of the cotton to then how it was dyed. Were those dyes toxic or were they clean? Um, Then when it was milled and then cut and sewn, was it cut and sewn in a factory where um, laborers were treated well and they were paid adequately and they were given breaks? Or was it the kind of place that was pretty unsafe and could, you know, end up causing a fire like this one that we just saw in New Delhi? earlier this this week that just killed a bunch of people again like this stuff is still happening it's not it's not from the past like we're still having factory fires in india or in bangladesh or in um, cambodia that are ending lives and to me that's a really 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 important ethical question and i don't think you have to be a person of faith at all to agree on that like that just seems really straightforward so i think once i started looking at all of that and realizing sort of like who makes our clothes and that it's usually people that are often pretty marginalized in the societies that that they're in or that they're just in sort of countries that don't have the same access to resources um and that those are the people that jesus was always talking about right like he, he was always always pushing to the margins of society like that's who he was most interested in so if you say you're interested in him to me it's like you've got to care who made your clothing and then when you look at, I mean, if you, if you, again, if you have any interest in like the Judeo-Christian narrative of the God of the Bible, that God is always saying that God reveals God's self through mm-hmm. creation. And that means that how we treat the planet in the process of making our clothing Dang. is also really important. 
Um, so I think once you understand those things, it's really hard to, yeah. to unsee them, right? Like I can't, like I'm sitting looking at my closet right now and I'm like, I can't look at anything in my closet without thinking about how I got it and what I know about how it was made, mm-hmm. which at this point for me is a lot, but I know at one point that wasn't true. So I think a big part of my goal is just to help people see sort of this whole story that comes behind their clothing before it ever gets to them and to help hold governments and companies accountable who have the power to change how those yeah, supply chains at, are run. At the scale, like, you know, looking at your closet is such a micro scale, but you multiply that out by every person in the world that has clothes, it gets to be a massive set of numbers or a massive set of conditions that are happening every day. Man, especially when you equate it to Absolutely. like, hey, if you love Jesus, you should probably care about the people that are making the stuff that you're buying. My the the yeah. the thing where my mind goes though, the maybe the sinful place my mind goes is like where how much do I have to care or like how how far back in the supply chain do I need to care because at a certain point I won't get anything done if I'm researching every product or good <laughs> that I've bought ever. And not to minimalize what you're saying, I just, yeah. in my mind, that's where it goes. It's like, well, okay, like it, all right, if I'm, if I care about Jesus, I should care about the people that are creating my t-shirts. But what about, what about this microphone I'm using? Or or what about the paint on my walls? Or what about mm-hmm. these scissors that are in my desk? Like, uh, do you ever think about that? Or do people ever bring that up to you about like, all right, like, where does it stop? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't, I guess this is what I would say is one, not everyone needs to be an expert on everything, right? Like I am an expert on clothing and I really can talk the ins and outs of all of these like nitty gritty details about the fashion supply chain. But even though I understand that like our food supply chains have a really huge impact as well, especially on things like um, the climate crisis, Mm -hmm. which I care deeply, deeply about, I'm not an expert on food. And honestly, I'm not nearly as responsible about my food choices as I am about my clothing, Mm -hmm. because I just know more about clothing. That said, I do think it's fair to say that we should all be thinking more about where we get things. And when it comes to clothing, I think one of the reasons it's easy for me to pick on is that it's not actually it's not like food in that you don't need it in the same way. Like you need right. new food yeah. every day. You yeah. absolutely cannot do without it. Most of us, most people listening to this podcast do not need any new clothing. And they honestly probably won't within the next five years. Like maybe you'll need a new pair of socks or underwear. Man, my probably weight has other been fluctuating, that- Whitney. <laughs> I, every six months I got a new waistline working. So Speak so maybe yourself. you buy maybe you buy one pair of jeans that fits you at every size. Buy some elastic. I'll look into where my <laughs> elastic comes from because that's what I need to be investing in. Sweet mercy. Sorry. There you go. I, I didn't mean to derail you, but uh, <laughs> carry on. You were you were making a good. No, point. you're good. And I think I think it's fair to be like, yeah, there are times that really call for new clothes. Um, but even then, I would say you can always go secondhand. It's not. It's. I guess it's just like it's not like some other consumer goods in that you really can almost always either get it secondhand, just not buy it at all. Mm-hmm. Or if you're buying new, do a little bit of research and find the the right thing. So I don't know. I think clothing can be an, like an easier way in for people. And yeah, it, I mean, if you start trying to track literally every object in your house and life, it will get overwhelming. But I think it's 
fashion can be a good place for people to start because we all use it, but we could probably all change how we consume it without it being harmful to us. Yeah. And, every, and everybody should like, it's a pretty easy, there's, there's a set of pretty easy baby steps you can make. Like maybe don't <laughs> go ham at target buying a bunch of new clothes, despite them being cheap. Like there's other options for getting relatively affordable clothes, even if it's just buying clothes secondhand, like just doing yeah. a step more than maybe you've done in the past. Cause that, yes. I mean, like even for me, I, I feel a little more convicted about like, um, you know, walking through the mall and like, I mean, I can't fit into anything at H and M, but I've looked at H and M before, and it's like just knowing that they're most likely using the the cheapest possible labor materials. That just between March and now, I f I at least feel more weight about that kind of thing. Now, granted, like I don't know anything close to what you know about clothing, but I I I think we all have room to grow, and it's not a it doesn't have to be a like sackcloth and ashes type thing overnight. And, yeah. and like the deeper thing I think is, and uh, what I've been kind of trying to work on more long form is like how much, if at least for people that say they believe in Jesus, like how much of his life and lifestyle are we to emulate? Because uh, depending on how you answer that question will probably dictate your shopping habits or your fashion habits, like to, to go out and try to fill a void with retail therapy is probably missing the point in being right. a follower of Jesus. What do you think? Right. And it seems like, I mean, maybe this is a cop-out, but isn't, isn't the ideal answer like as much as possible, right? Like, I don't want to, really I don't want to say that is... because then I'm going to have to actually <laughs> live, it. live it. Yeah. I don't. I'm not prepared to put that right, like, on the record. <laughs> like none of us are doing it well, but I just, I just wonder what, what it looks like when people really take Jesus seriously. I mean, yeah. I actually, I remember I, I DM'd you about this earlier, th or earlier this year, but I guess there's like two, there's sort of two main threads that I think come out of this. The one is talking about the ways that we're consuming and like consuming more ethically or being more careful about our supply chains, like asking who's making our clothing, asking how that's impacting the planet and the ecosystems that those materials are drawn out of. And that's sort of one side. And I can go into so much depth on mm -hmm. that. Um, but the other so side of it that I think that a lot of the work you're doing has brought up for people is about sort of wealth and possessions and consumption overall. Right. Yeah. And that's honestly, a, that's been a question that's I don't know. I'm evolving in a lot, how I think about a lot of that this year too. Um, I mean, I think the conversations we were having earlier in the year when we were, when I did that first interview with you, that was part of it. But then it's also been really, really interesting. I met someone. Well, let me rewind. Okay. Have you heard of the book Winners Take All by Anand Garrett Haradas? I only have heard of it because I listened to a podcast interview you did earlier and you said that was like one yeah. of your favorite books. <laughs> I was trying to do my research, but okay. you did another nice. fashion type podcast and you brought up that book, but that's the only place I've heard of it. Yeah. Okay. So this book is by a reporter and it's not, he's not a person of faith. It's not talking about faith or fashion explicitly at all, but he talks a lot about um, 
basically the ways that we try to accomplish good and the ways that we do that through business, which in the past, sort of like businesses trying to do good in the world has been something I've I've highlighted and hmm. advocated for a lot in my writing. And this book was, the book's about a lot of other things too, but that's, those were some of the biggest things for me. And this book was really um, big in sort of shifting how I thought about that and being like, hey, is business actually the best way to accomplish these things that we say we're trying to accomplished because if so why is inequality in terms of like income just growing so i got really kind of obsessed with this book for a lot of the the first half of this year and through the fact that i was talking about it incessantly literally everywhere i went <laughs> i made friends with someone at through praxis which is a sort of entrepreneurship centric group that does a lot around like faith and work. And I'm not an entrepreneur, but yeah, I've heard, I've heard of them before. Yeah. They're, I don't know where they're doing. Well, Liz Bohannon is another person who's connected to the Praxis network. So I don't know if that's okay, maybe that's that what it was. about, but they're a great, they're a great group that's doing a lot of really great work. But I was at a gathering of theirs and met someone who was also sort of in that network and started talking about this book. And the long story short is that we ended up having this really long conversation about like how you actually accomplish good this person worked in uh, philanthropy at the time, read this book, quit his job <laughs> because he became convinced that the way that he was involved in philanthropy was actually like not helping. Jeez. And since then has, I mean, literally like given away all his money, given away his like laptop and his phone. He's currently living um, in LA, like on the streets with a bunch of other people who live outside and just trying to be like, hey, this seems like this is what Jesus was saying. So, like, why don't we just do this? Jeez. Okay, if you want to talk about someone who's, like, taking Jesus really seriously at Jesus' word, it's like, this friend of mine is doing that. And there's a lot of ways in which I'm like, man, I don't know how to follow yeah. you because I feel like I don't know that everyone is called to a career. I don't actually think everyone is. But I, I actually do have a really strong sense of calling about my work. Mm. Um. And so I like until I feel like I'm sort of released from that, like I'm going to keep prioritizing these things. Yeah. And I don't know necessarily how to do that while like giving away my laptop. Right, right, right. But yeah. <laughs> but I think so many of us are so willing to be like, well, that's just too hard or that's too crazy. Like I could never do that. Mm -hmm. And to to like see a see a friend as someone who I knew, I think it's easy too when I'm saying this whole story to be like, oh, yeah, this is this person. But it's like I met this person before they made any of these choices. Like he, he had not made these choices yeah. and then he made them just because he was like, how different would it look if I just took Jesus really seriously? Um, and we did a whole study with a bunch of people on wealth and possessions and what that has looked like throughout Judeo-Christian scripture. And like, it's just been a process that I, I think, again, it comes back to the two things. It's like, one, how does this system exist as it is and how can we make it better? But then two, like, what are the ways that we don't even need to be participating in the system that we're just letting the culture around us tell us we have to. And so we're not opting out when we actually could, mm. like, there really is another way. And I'm not saying everyone is going to do what my friend did. Um, but I do think that his his sort of attitude towards this has really challenged me because something he said really early on in this process was something like, he was like, what if Christians were known not so, not so much for their like sexual discipline as their financial discipline, because the Bible talks way more about money than it does about sex. Mm. But if you ask any of my friends in New York, what they know about Christians, it's like, Oh, didn't Justin Bieber and Haley Bieber like not have sex before they got married. <laughs> it's like, that's what they know. 
I'm not kidding. Yeah. Like I, it's just ridiculous. If, if yeah. to, it is. It is. But this is what we've focused on, right? We've like fought these battles about these things that it's not to say that they're not in scripture or that they're not, you know, there to be talked about, but the the sort of weight that we've given them where we can tell people what to do with their sex lives, but we're so unwilling to tell people what what they should consider doing with their money. Mm just seems really out of whack to me yeah. because Jesus was crazy about that stuff. He was like, sell everything you own. <laughs> and he would tell people things like that. And then if, you know, if someone is to do that in sort of the modern church today, we are like, oh, no, no, no. Well, you know, everyone has to do their own thing. Yeah. I just wonder if we, if we need to be willing to like take the challenge a little bit more and ask like, what would it look like to live really radically um, with regards to what we see as our possessions? Yeah, that is such a, a good point. Cause like even thinking of, of my own like sub upbringing, we cared a ton about purity and, you know, not doing it before marriage, saving yourself for marriage. But I don't remember, I mean, we never hammered on debt and how we were spending our money in near the same or how much money we were giving away in near the same type of tone and terms as we were talking about purity. I'd never, I'd never considered it like that until you just said that though. That's, that's very interesting. But I guess the the rebuttal is like, all right, well, the purity stuff you're dealing with, uh, sin within your body, that maybe I'm just trying to process this. God, you know, God calling it mm-hmm. your body a temple, and then basically defiling it by being impure. I mean, then you start talking about grading sins on a scale in both like like being poor stewards of our money and being poor stewards of our body are both what separate us from God. Yeah, and I guess I don't really want to get into a game of being like, this thing is worse than this thing. I guess it's just funny, though, when you say something like talking about your body as the temple, because it's like, what's the one time we see Jesus get like just so pissed that he gets almost violent? It's in the temple, right? With yeah. the money changers. Like it's it comes back to money. So I, again, I don't mm. want to necessarily say like you can't pay attention to this and this at the same time. Yes, you can. Like you can pay attention to a lot of different things. I just think when we look at the American church, and I absolutely like put myself in this category of someone who really hasn't had that robust of a theology of money before this point. Yeah. We haven't we haven't made it a priority to understand or question or think about that. And we've been really careful about not wanting to step on people's toes. Yeah. Whereas we've been absolutely willing to regulate everything about people's sex lives. It just doesn't make any sense to me when Dang, I look yeah. at the proportions that Jesus talked about these things. Yeah, that's that. Oh, that's a great word because, like, having a um, just like you, like, I, I think there is a. There's got to, and I, I want to avoid trying to sound like some arrogant know-it-all that feels like he's more inspired than others. Like I'm sure people have talked about this before, but it seems like there's got to be a shift coming that says we have been effing away all the talks about money and basically letting everyone kind of do their own thing in their own mind, and have been over-indexing on maybe the the purity stuff. Uh, it seems like we're headed that way because kind of like. Uh, if we can tie it back in, it's for whatever reason, people got fired up about the preachers and sneakers thing up to this point. No one had really kind of touched a nerve in that way regarding 
spending money and representing Christ. And it was more, it was like on the extreme level. And that, that, that seems, indi- <laughs> that seems indicative of a shift that's coming around, like talks about money in the church. Cause I've, I've sat through plenty of sermons talking about money and how we're to be good stewards of, the, of money, but we've never really had like super honest conversations in the same way that we've had honest conversations. Like, Hey bro, do you have anything to confess? Like, have you been messing around with so-and-so? <laughs> like, I've never had that conversation with, you know, accountability partners like, Hey bro, like, did you spend a thousand bucks on your credit card? That kind of thing. Or like, Oh, have you really not been giving to anyone for the past 10 years? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about preachers and sneakers. Hey, yo, what up? This episode of the preachers and sneakers podcast is brought to you by posterburner.com. You know, all those photos on your iPhone and your computer that you took once and never looked at again. Why not take some of the best ones and turn those into beautiful canvases for your home or office? Posterburner.com uses advanced printing science that I don't understand, like image super resolution, to prepare your image for printing. And that makes a huge difference in the final print quality. It won't look amateur and it won't look blurry like if you printed it at your house. They have old-fashioned conversational customer service. Talking to a real person, imagine that. That will help you along or answer any of your questions. Your image will never print better than it will at posterburner.com, and I can guarantee it. They sent me a poster of some of the graphics I use on Instagram, and it looks amazing. Go to posterburner.com slash preachers today, and you'll get an additional 10% off your order. That discount applies to every type of print they offer. Again, that's posterburner.com slash preachers. And we're back with Whitney Bauck. We're talking about ethical fashion. We're talking about finance conversations within church and why we should care about our spending where we get our things and the kind of tone and terms that we talk about money compared to maybe other issues like purity. Um, so we've talked a lot about ethical fashion and kind of writing about it and kind of the concept of it, uh, somewhat of a self-serving question. Can you talk me through the, uh, process of you kind of discovering the preachers and sneakers account and then reaching out to me because you basically, you were my first interview my first like kind of uh, affirmation that what I was doing was newsworthy. So could you kind of talk to me about that whole process? Could just, even for my own entertainment, like it would be (laughs) fun to hear about how you found the account and what that looked like. Yeah, I can't remember. I think the first person I saw tweet about it or something was, maybe it was Caitlin Beatty, um, who's a former Christianity Today person who's now a a book publisher. Um, Okay, cool. And I've been, I've been, again, I've been writing about this for a long time, right? So it's like, I've written about, I, when all of the church, all the cool big churches started doing church merch, I wrote about that when, yeah, you know, all of, when all of these pastors were starting to be in the spotlight, cause they were hanging out with Bieber and whoever I wrote about that and wrote about sort of the, the role that fashion plays in how these guys see themselves and, um, you know, sort of how they how they move in their own congregation. So none of that, none of this was really new to me, but it was just like, Oh my gosh, there's this thing that's obviously like a sort of new take on it. And so that's why I reached out. Um, and it's, hmm. it's been the kind of thing that I think, I think this is the other thing. There's a, there's a sort of divide I think often in how religious folks are portrayed in art and media. And I think on the one hand, if something's made by religious folks, things can be flattened because there's a tendency to be like, 
oh, we're just going to portray everything is just fine and everyone is so great. Or things can be flattening in the other direction where if religious folks are portrayed by non-religious folks who aren't very sympathetic, they can be flattened by being like, these people are so dumb or so corrupt or so whatever. So I'm always interested in ways in which we can talk about religious folks honestly. (laughs) And I think that should happen whether or not, whatever your background is, however you're talking about people should be honest and well-rounded. And so I think that was the other thing that was interesting to me is that it felt like you were bringing up sort of a a really valid critique. But then especially once I started talking to you and realized like, oh, you're a person of faith yourself. And the reason you noticed all of this is because you were watching worship music videos. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not my proudest moment either. (laughs) YouTubing worship videos. Hey, no hate, no hate. (laughs) I think it just made it really interesting to me. Yeah, I've since met the guy that, of the video that I was watching. And oh yeah. He, How'd that go? Well, uh, come to find out he had borrowed the shoes. So that was <laughs> a good piece of info to know. Nice. Uh, but he was actually cool about it and kind of, <laughs> I got to meet him in person actually when he was touring with Hillsong. Um, but I, I think my views on it have probably changed a little bit since we talked. I mean, you, you were interviewing me within like two weeks of me creating the account and not understanding that people saw this as like a serious cultural discussion. And I, Mm -hmm. at the, at the time I really didn't have any intent of being a part of that. Like I just liked making people laugh. I liked, you know, people thinking it was new and fresh and feeling like I'd created something that nobody else had thought of. All that was great. And then I was at the time you were interviewing me, it it was like, Oh shit. Like people, this makes people (laughs) feel some type of way, one way or the other, I didn't, yeah. I need to kind of get a grip on how I feel about this, but I still like there's sides to both of like there. I, I understand, like I've talked to several of these guys and I understand their perspective, but also I still hold true that it's like, you should consider what your clothing communicates, whether or not it's fair or not. Like, if you're curating the picture on Instagram, you should understand that maybe not everyone is going to love it. Now, granted, people will blame me for even bringing light to it. I'm like, dude, I, I've done very little other than <laughs> just put the price tag next to the thing that you already posted about. Yeah. What do you What do you think about like taking your maybe fashionista hat off and more your believer hat on, not believer, believer <laughs> hat on? Helpful clarification. Yeah. What do you think about – because the the deeper thing, at least for me, is like what are we to do with building wealth and notoriety and kind of access and privilege off of the name of Jesus, like off of purely being a good communicator, performer, artist around the name of Jesus? What do you think about all that? Oh, man. I feel like so much of my thought on that is still evolving, to be quite honest. Like – I, I didn't personally (laughs) come to a place financially just to be really transparent myself until like pretty recently where I wasn't just sort of like scraping to get by. Like I live in New York. It's very expensive. Uh, The work that I do can look glamorous from the outside, but it's often not very well compensated. Hmm. Um, The way that you can make good money in it is by like working directly with brands in a way that I'm not personally willing to at this point in my life. And so it's only been recently that I've been stable enough financially to really be like, Oh, like now I have the, now I have enough uh, sort of margin that like I'm actually making decisions. I'm not just like surviving. Yeah. 
And Congrats. so I think, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that what that's meant is that for a long time, my, my sort of ideology was like, I just don't spend on anything. I don't absolutely have to. Mm-hmm. And then that's how I, you know, make it work. And so I think these conversations that I've been having, like I mentioned with my friend, Matt, who I met through Praxis and this, a group of us who did a book study this summer on um, wealth and possessions, which, but which is by Walter Brueggemann. He's an Old Testament scholar. Yep. That's really been, it's really just been shifting how I think about so much of it. And I think before I would have been much more willing to say like, you know, I, I mean, I do think things are still up in in some ways up to the individual person. I don't think that the right thing is going to be to swing so far the other direction that we suddenly are like, have churches telling people how they need to be spending their money or not. I think that could also get really gross. Um, But right now it does seem like there's this sort of carte blanche around being like, yeah, you know, if your message is good and you're like, you love the Lord and you like, don't commit the cultural sins that in America we really prize. So like, I would say that's things around, sexuality and whatever mm-hmm. then then you're fine and we're not going to question it and i just don't i just don't think that makes sense do i know what what people should be doing who you know run these mega churches no i i truly don't like i don't know what i would do if i was put in that position yeah i think for some of them there's probably some people out there that are genuinely like schemers and grifters and they're totally just milking the cow mm-hmm. but i think there are other people who probably like are really earnest and they started out in the thing and then they had, you know, they were had sort of charisma and great stage presence. And so they kept getting bigger and bigger platforms put in front of them. And honestly, I think some of them probably just haven't really thought about it. Like I think some of them sort of rode this wave and then got to the top and what they saw from other people in sort of their status level, whether they were people of faith or not, was this sort of almost influencer thing and so they did it too, because they hadn't, you know, they they just hadn't dug into the, the like the real richness that there is in scripture around like what it looks like to interact with money well. Yeah, um, and there's so many like putting myself in their shoes. Like if you're, they they probably didn't see anything wrong with it, and there might still not be anything wrong with you know having designer clothes that are worth a ton and you know, wearing name brand stuff on stage outside of the, the ethics of the actual products. that just makes me think like, is it even worth discussing if there is no, uh, if there's no endpoint, like, you know, trying to annualize it out, like, is the counter to this just ultimately ending up living a monk lifestyle? Cause I would never want to do that, nor would I want to ask somebody that's being a pastor, a super hard job to live like that either. I just don't know. I don't know where it ends or I don't know where it stops or, and, but then you say like, well, you know, it's case by case and kind of gray. And then it's like, all right, well then if it's case by case and it all depends on the person, is it worth continuing to talk about or is it worth continuing to bring up? But isn't that so much of how Jesus did everything in his ministry? He was so rarely being like, here's the, here's the list of 10 rules that are black and white. And if you do this, you're fine. And if you're not, you're screwed. Like hmm. he was always having these really personal interactions with people that were so individual to them. And what he said to one person might sound almost like the opposite of what he said to someone else. But I think it's because he understood that like, 
we're, it's, there's not often these things that you can, there are some things like, yeah, probably don't murder someone ever. Like mm-hmm. that seems like a good move, mm-hmm. but there are other things that are not always that clear and that are going to be different based on different things. And there are going to be things that maybe I couldn't handle very well that you could handle. And so when it shows up in my life, it's like, man, Whitney, you got to get that out of there. Whereas you could, you could handle it in stride. Like, I think there's, there's a huge range. I don't think it means we stop talking about it. I think it just means like, a lot of this stuff has to be worked out in community um, in the context of a group of people who are going to like hold you accountable and also come alongside you as you try to evolve. Um, I'm curious, are you familiar with Rich Mullins? Uh, Yes. Didn't he pass away? He did. He was a like Christian contemporary artist (laughs) in the (laughs) nineties. He was big. He was big dude. He was like, he wrote Awesome God. Like he's written a yeah. million things yep. you've heard. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So I I got obsessed with him also earlier this year because I started just like reading about how he handled his finances. Mm-hmm. So just to like give a little back like context, this guy was like one of the top people in Christian music when Christian music was like a a monolith. Like it was huge. Yep. Um, CD sales, and, all that kind of. Yeah, like you could make real money. <laughs> And he like did the whole Nashville thing, which is where all those people were mm-hmm. for a while. And then he was like, eh, this is gross. I'm not into this. So he moved to Kansas, I think, and did a uh, seminary there. And he was still making all this money from doing his tours and his sales and whatever. But rather than keep it or even rather than like tithing it, he had all of his money sent to his elder board at his little church in Wichita, Kansas. So that he wasn't even the one that was making the decisions. He was like, I don't even want to be the one who gets to call the shots on how to give this. So they all decided where to give it away. They gave him whatever was the like, whatever the average American salary was that year. That's what they would give him to live on. And then the rest of it, they gave away. So that's how he lived for a while. And then (laughs) he was like, nah, I'm done with that. And he moved to, I think it was the Navajo reservation. And he had all of his money just pooled among everyone at the Navajo reservation. And and then at some point he realized that was just making them one of the richest reservations in the U S. And so then he started giving it just like amongst reservations in the U S like this guy was, I don't even know of an equivalent today. I don't know if we have someone that's sort of the equivalent of like this sort of height of Christian culture, but he was so aware of the way that money corrupts and also that it doesn't, it's not like, it's not going to make his life better. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like saying like, Oh, I wouldn't want to ask anyone to like live like a monk or to give up these things. I get that. But I think we also have a misunderstanding of what wealth and possessions actually do in our life. Like if you understand that they're not really where your joy is going to come from or where fulfillment is going to come from, it's, there's actually a lot of really beautiful things you can be invited into when you're given freedom from those things. Mm. And I think sometimes we think like, Oh no, my, my freedom is being able to choose to have those things. But I think sometimes we've forgotten the freedom that comes from like saying no to those and, and what else that like allows into your life. Oh, that is a lie. I believe all the time though, that money I mean, is going be- <laughs> Gonna make things like yeah, yeah yeah no no money doesn't fulfill but let me let me just learn that for myself let me not I don't want to learn that from <laughs> you person that already has money but yeah. no I'm I'm agreeing with you like that and pot meat kettle like I I don't know how to do that right now like that is one of my biggest struggles about saying like dude if I could just get to this number we could be crushing it 
and you know it could do mm-hmm. so much good for the world but that's like almost like a prison where you're just like this dictates everything that i do but if i could find a way to break free from feeling like i need all that stuff like you said like there's you, you would almost be able to tap into something that you'd never had access to like the freedom and the peace that comes from not having to have any of that stuff hmm well what do you do you splurge on anything like is there anything that you do like that you're working towards like a, is it a trip or is it a like what do you what's entertainment for you yeah i mean i don't want to make it sound like i'm like living in a like listen i have access to so many privileges there's so many ways in which i'm like i don't know i i feel like i am deeply privileged from a like money and possessions perspective. And I guess it just depends on what Mm. you're comparing things to. Um, Yeah. And there's a million ways that I'm not using my money well at the moment. Like there are, there are so many things that I'm like, yeah, I could be doing better in this and this is something I want to grow in. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I feel like most of my money goes to like transportation and travel and food. (laughs) Yeah. Those are the, That's great. And I'm I mean, honestly, like, because of people like my friend Matt, who's now living in the streets in LA, like, I'm thinking a lot more about giving. And, like, I've, since meeting him, I've been, I, like, I'm giving regularly to a lot of places that I wasn't before. And and looking yeah. at what it would take to increase that over time. Um, and I don't know. I do imagine, like, in the long run, what does it look like to continue building into the kinds of communities in places like New York that are really stable and that people can really find really tight knit interdependent communities, um, which is hard here because people get priced out of their neighborhoods so often. And quite frankly, I expect right. that to happen to me. So, you know, those are things that I think, you know, long-term, what does it mean to do, do some, like think about that with regards to money? Um, I don't in any way mean to hold myself up as like, I'm doing this well or right. I don't think I am. I think I'm really at the beginning of my journey of like having a better perspective on all of this, but I've been grateful for the people who have challenged me and like really helped me to think differently about it because I do think it, like you're saying, it's kind of time. Like we've been doing it wrong in the American church for a really long time. Like it's kind of time for something to shift. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, More, on the practical, because uh, I, I agree with you, like wholeheartedly, and I don't know why it has fallen in both of our laps like this. Well, it fell in my lap. You worked for it, but uh, <laughs> there does seem to be a purpose for why, like, there does seem to be a purpose for why Kanye West is so publicly becoming a Christian and going to Joel Osteen's church, like, oh, and man. why that fits so well into the whole consumerism and celebrity preachers and sneakers conversation. I don't know what's going to happen, but it feels like it is pretty timely at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, more practically, I just want to ask you one more thing about ethical fashion. What brands do you think are doing, like what brands are you a fan of and how they're operating? Cause like this, you know, as I produce more and more product myself, it would be helpful to know what brands are serving as a good example of this. And then what, which brands are maybe, talking the talk, but not performing what they're saying they're going to do. Oh man. Um, well, my disclaimer is always, always, always do secondhand first or just deal with what's in your already in your closet. We cannot buy our way out of an ecological crisis, which is what we're facing right now. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. 
I can, I will list brands, but only with the very strong disclaimer that like, you shouldn't be like, oh, well, now I can just buy these brands and not feel guilty about it. Like we have to curb right, right, our right. consumption overall. So okay. that being Tracking. said, um, I mean, I feel like Patagonia and Eileen Fisher are two brands that pretty much every brand that I talk to, um, when they're thinking about who they admire and look up to, those are two of the brands that come up for people. They're just, they're both really responsible or trying to be really responsible around um, human rights in terms of their labor and their factories and all of that. And they're also trying to be really responsible about how they're sourcing raw materials um, and sort of the impact that that has both on the people who are part of that part of the supply chain, whether they're farmers or ranchers or whoever, and the planet itself in terms of plants and animals. Those are two that are great. Patagonia, I don't know. I don't know much about Eileen Fisher. I did have a classmate work there this summer in the MBA program and she really enjoyed it. Um, Patagonia does a really good job of repurposing all their stuff too. Like you yes. can basically get it repaired or replaced. Yeah. And, or, and that's yeah, so becoming like it's kind of a thing more, now. Yeah. That's becoming more true even for other, I mean, Eileen Fisher, one of the reasons they come up too is that they have set up a whole, they call it their tiny factory. And it's, it's basically all built on taking back old Eileen Fisher clothes and, and upcycling them into new things, which is something that. <coughs> upcycling. That's the term upcycling. Yes. Yep. Which is something that everyone said for a long time. You just can't do it scale. You can't do it scale. You can't do it profitably. Um, and it's still a challenge to figure that out, but those are two brands that are trying to do it. Awesome. I've seen you write uh, about Nike specifically about their kind of making a commitment to some green type initiatives. What do you think about what they're doing? Uh, do you think that it's more of a PR thing right now or have they made any strides as far as improving their supply chain? Because a lot of people will bring that up. It's like, yeah, your shoes were made by in a sweatshop somewhere in, in Thailand or something. What do you yeah. think about Are we just talk about Nike specifically? Oh, Nike. Um, <laughs> they are, They don't have the best track record. They don't have the best track record. Mm. So if you look at like the 90s, there were a ton of boycotts against Nike because all of this information came out about labor abuses in their factories. And they responded in a way that's made people, people actually point to that as like, this is an example of how um, consumer activism can work. But I feel like what it's shown to me, if anything, is that you really need people who who like, this is going to sound whatever, something. It, it, you need people whose hearts are really in it. And it's it's about more than just responding. And quite frankly, I'm not super convinced that's what's happening there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had I had their their new chief sustainability officer look me in the eye and tell me that they don't have any leverage over their supply chain at this point, basically saying, like, we can't mm-hmm. control, you know, what's happening there. And there was a report this summer about um some factories in Malaysia where a number of different brands were producing and Nike was one of them. And there was some really yucky stuff happening in terms of labor rights violations there. And a lot of other brands actually responded in pretty great ways, but Nike kind of passed the buck and said it wasn't Hmm. their fault and said, we didn't know these weren't, these weren't places that we were choosing to produce. These were subcontractors, which is true, right? Like they didn't technically authorize those places, but to me, I would say, like, if you really care about doing right, then you need to take control of your supply chain and you need to figure that stuff out so that doesn't happen. And they've, I mean, this stuff has been pointed out about them before, it, literally in Malaysia, not even like in another part of the world. In Malaysia, a similar report like this came out in the Wall Street Journal, I want to say, I don't know, like 10 mm-hmm. years ago. 
So to me, if if you if this is happening to you over and over as a brand and you keep being like, well, we're working on it or, you know, well, like I get that they're a huge company, but I just considering that they they would talk about themselves as leaders in design and leaders in tech innovation, um, I would like to see a little bit more leadership in terms of how they're implementing practices that really protect human rights and that really protect the environment. And right now I'm not convinced that that's happening. Yeah, that's an interesting <clears throat> it's an interesting take. Like uh, you would think a multi-bazillion dollar company could throw some resources at potentially. I mean, granted, it's probably a super complex organization and a lot of a lot of, you know, cooks in the kitchen up there, but yeah, you would think that the uh the the playing dumb about factories in Malaysia would not be that great of a like to say you don't have any leverage over your supply chain is I mean, out of context, that seems ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I get that they're they're a huge ship, right? Like they're the largest sportswear brand in the world. Like that, there's a lot. I get, I get that there's a lot that they're dealing with. But again, like if you can figure out how to do all of these other crazy, amazing things in terms of your innovation, but you can't figure out how to make sure that there's no child labor in your supply chain, like to me, you're not prioritizing the right thing like get the one thing straight like i'm more interested in you not having a kid make my shoes than i am in like you creating something that's one percent springier in the soul right facts yeah i guess i would love to i would love to hear maybe i'll get one of them on the podcast one day to hear from their perspective because i'm sure i'm sure other people are beating down their door about the same things but I, i i wonder what what's actually going on back there all right we, I've taken uh, more time than I said I would, but uh, are you are you working on anything currently that people can find on the internet or you got any projects going on? Oh, always. Uh, got anything to pub? <laughs> I mean, the easiest way to keep, I don't know when this will come out. The easiest way to keep up with what I'm doing is usually through social at this point, which as you already mentioned is just at Unwrinkling. So I'm always pushing out new stuff. Happy to get feedback on it and what people are interested in learning more about too. Heck yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm so impressed with your writing, Whitney. I mean, you've basically changed my life for the, uh, we'll see if it was for the better or not (laughs) in the long term, but, uh, I appreciate you being willing to come talk and, you know, giving me my start in the public domain. Um, I, you know, there's probably some, you probably contributed to me getting my blue check mark. So that's the most important thing out there. So, (laughs) Uh, Whitney Buck, thanks for taking the time again, and I hope you continue to crush it in the news world and continue to make a huge impact in uh, ethical fashion. I know I've uh, learned a ton and super challenged, and I'm going to go back to burying my head in the sand so I don't feel guilty about the things I'm thinking about. <laughs> so thanks again. Thanks for having me. Big shouts out to my homie Zane Callister for producing this week's episode. Not only that, but he also provided the intro and ad music from his band Utah. You can check them out on Spotify as well as Instagram at MadeByUtah. If you haven't by this point, shame on you, but please make sure that you subscribe and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you want additional access, additional merch, additional content from Preachers and Sneakers, check us out on patreon.com slash preachers and sneakers.